through their music. Out of the Box with Joey Watson on FBI 94.5. Hello, FBI radio listener. This is Out of the Box. Every Thursday from midday to one, I get to sit down with one person and roll through the records from their life and the stories that define them. Today, I'm with Ron McCallum. Ron is the former dean of the University of Sydney Law School, the chair of the United Nations Committee on the Rights of of Persons with Disabilities in Geneva, and a senior Australian of the year at one stage two. He's also completely blind. In fact, he's never been able to see. His memoir is called Born at the Right Time. It's at bookshops now. Ron, a very warm welcome to Out of the Box. Thank you, Joey. It's my great honour to be here on Out of the Box It's an honour to be sitting with you, Ron. Do you think music might mean something different to someone who can't see? I think the music is pretty much the same. I have a son who's a film com- composer in Los Angeles and music is central to him. But I think because I cannot deal with forms of art with vision, like photography and painting, then music becomes very special to me. And in the 90s, I took up playing the flute as an adult because I wanted to play Bach and Telemann, which was super. How, how do you learn the flute when, when you can't see? Well, I, in theory, I could use Braille music, but what I used to use was, in those days, a cassette tape recorder and my flute teacher, Susie Miller, would play the phrase and tell me what it was and it would be on the cassette tape and I would come home and practice perhaps much to the annoyance of my children but I loved it and still love the flute music. But one phrase at a time. Yes and then put it together but because I haven't been able to write in my younger days I learned um, memory mnemonics and so it, it wasn't too hard it's like learning lines. How do, how do memory mnemonics work? Explain that to me. Well there are all sorts of methods um, for example If I want to remember a list, I will walk along the corridor of the law school and put each bit of the list in front of the door of one of my colleagues so that then I can go back in my mind and the the list will be there as I, in my mind, walk along the corridor. There are all sorts of ways of doing it. It's all about sequencing. You mentioned that you'd started doing that uh, quite young. Were you born blind? I was born blind. I was born between eight and ten weeks premature, which meant that they used pure oxygen uh, to keep me breathing, but that caused the retinas in my eyes to come off. And so for all intents and purposes, I've been blind. Um, There's about $10,000 in the developed world from 1945 to 1955 with this disease called or not a disease, condition, retrolental fibroplasia. One of us is very famous, Steve Lynn Judkins. You'd know him as Stevie Wonder, who was born two years after me in 1950 with a premature and, and had the same oxygen to keep surviving. So this is the same thing that Stevie Wonder has? Yes. And, and the way you describe it as being oxygen-related makes it sound like it was almost ne- medical negligence in a way. Oh, no. I, I think, in fairness, they wanted to keep us alive. And the only way to keep us alive was by pure oxygen. They were still learning. In 1955, they worked out that they had to control the oxygen more carefully. And now my condition of retrolental fibroplasia is a rare but not unknown condition in developed countries. How did your parents react? Well, a bit awkward. My my mother was very protective and explained to me that... um, the world didn't know me a living and I had to learn to make my own way. My father 
was suffering from post-traumatic stress and alcoholism after World War II. He was a much older man. Um, he was violent towards my mother, and I think he saw me in some ways as a lessening of his virility. I don't know how to put it, but I don't remember him ever picking me up. So do you have strong memories of violence between them? How would it play out for you? Ooh, um, look, I can remember when I was five or thereabouts him pushing my mum, pulling hair out of her hair, which, and I f- remember feeling her elbow when she was pushed onto the ground. He did it when he was drunk, but I do remember. Um, it sort of ghostly comes up and I don't like to remember too much and I don't want to make a, a big thing about it but perhaps not being able to see had its added complexity in that situation. Things an, an extra element of confusion. Yeah, but it was a very long time ago. Your mother backed you pretty hard. Uh, how, how did she do that? Well, she gave up a lot of time to assist me, and in high school, there were no computers in those days, she used to read to me of an evening textbooks when I think she would have rather watching television, and she also read to me but some material um, during my university course. Was it still a happy childhood? Yes, I was happy with my brothers and my father died when I was 14 in 1962. Yeah, it was pretty happy. It was the 60s, there were the Beatles, the Rolling Stones and all of that. It was a whole awakening. <laughs> yeah. Maybe we should start with some music. It's not the Beatles or the Rolling Stones yet. This is a Chuck Berry track. Oh, what, what do you Chuck. want to play? Oh, look, any of the Chuck records would do, back to school. Um, He just, he was the predecessor of the Beatles. He was uh, an Afro-American. He was trained as a classical musician, and he just had that thing with the guitar. You know, Johnny Be Good, you know, all those songs. And it reminds me of my youth. There was sort of a a vibrance to him. You're laughing. (laughs) Do you like Chuck? I love Chuck. I love the old stuff. I love the old stuff. I do.
Johnny Be Good there. An absolute rock and roll classic on your FBI radio and your out of the box brought in today by Professor Ron McCallum, the former dean of the University of Sydney Law School is with me. The, uh, he uh, is also blind and that's defined a lot of his life experience, which he's uh, detailed in his recent memoir. Ron, where did you go to high school? I went to high school to a Melbourne Catholic college called St. Bede's College, Mentone, in a bayside suburb of Melbourne. I had to get a bus, a train, and then walk down to the school. How was that journey for you? It was quite long and complicated, but I used to meet guys when I got to Mentone railway station, and they would walk down with me. Um, I found I went in year nine, and I found the guys to be pretty receptive and helpful. It was a very sporty school with cricket and Australian rules and it was, there were still racing stables in uh, Mentone in those days so there were a lot of guys interested in racing. That all went a bit above my head but the students treated me pretty well <clears throat> and there were no computers so I, the students used to read to me which was very good. Um, I remember uh, in year 11 um, students were supposed to be reading to me uh, history and I brought in my Braille playing cards and we were playing blackjack and poker till we were caught. <laughs> so you'd learned to read Braille already at quite a young age? Oh, I learned to read Braille at the age of five in blind schools, yes. How absolutely. does Braille work? It's, it's quite prolific in the world around us now, but I don't think many sighted people know exactly. Can you if you hold your, your two lots of three fingers up, second and third and fourth, in, in, in two rows of three... I'm doing it with you now. That's yeah. a, a Braille cell of six dots... That one and finger four, we'll say, is on the left hand is dot one, then three is dot two, <coughs> two is dot three, and and on the other hand it's four, five, and six. So if I'm writing A, it'll just be finger two, one dot. B will be finger, oh, sorry, finger four and three is B, um, and two dots like that means C. And if you were mathematical, you would know that you can have 63 combinations of dots in a cell of six. 63 combinations. Yeah, so, so it's a lot that of means there's shorthand. more than one symbol, I suppose, per letter. Oh, yes. So that's, what do the remainder stand for? Well, shorthand, there's, there's shorthand for the, there's shorthand for punctuation, there's shorthand for with, there's shorthand for um, ch, and all sorts of continents. Um, We've been working, there were different forms of Braille. I read a number of forms of Braille at the moment. The, the key one is United English Braille, which we're now using in America and Australia. America used to use a different Braille system because it adopted Braille much later. Was there any opportunity for sport when you were at school? Yeah, we used to have in my blind schools, we used to have running tracks where I um, would hold a handle and run along with a wire and... I, when I was about 13, I started playing blind cricket. Now, that's interesting. It was invented in the sheltered workshops where blind men were working in the 30s and 40s. They, did, they wanted to... They heard cricket on the radio. They were making baskets, so they built cricket balls out of cane from the baskets. They put in a piece of lead and beer bottle tops to make it rattle, and they would, you could bowl it, and it had to bounce once before the halfway line and once after the halfway line. So it would make a noise, and then the batter could hit it. And it was interesting that, that people isolated in a sheltered workshop used the, the stuff they had with them, the cane, 
to make balls to make their lives better. And I played that in the 60s. Now the balls are plastic and they're more technical and there's actually a blind ashes competition between Australia and Britain. What, what sort of expectations were there for for a young blind person? Things had improved. But remember, because I couldn't read print, all of the print jobs were closed, all of the clerical jobs. So it was either going to be factory work or... Another occupation was the telephonist. We don't remember at that these days, but there used to be um, telephony um, systems in, in office blocks where there was one line in and you had to put in the, the levers to transfer calls from one to the other. Um, they were for blind people. I tried my hand. I thought I could become a high school history teacher. I liked history and English, and that would mean going to university. So I thought that would be a good career I could be. Um, Sadly, I overshot the marks and got into law school. And the family had a discussion because lawyers normally were on the other side. We were very poor people. Um, my father had died. My mum was a legacy widow. We didn't have hot water in the house. Um, but anyway, the, the family consensus was I would have a go at it for a year and see how I went, and I went pretty well. There you go. Before we get to law, uh, to studying law at least, let's go to another song. What do we want to play now? What about the Beatles? Oh, I, I love that idea. Which which song? Well, in year 12, um, there were two albums that came out. One was um, Rubber Soul and the other was Revolver. This is before Sgt. Pepper. Mm. And I remember playing um, Rubber Soul um, while I was studying for year 12. And the, the song I like is My Life. And it's all about uh, I've met someone special um, in my life um, and I wondered whether I would actually meet someone special, as one does in one's teenage years. And of course, later on, I met and married Mary Crock. So I sort of dedicate this song to her. There are places I remember. Oh, 
That is The Beatles there, 1966. Rubble, Rubber Soul, another classic. Uh, My Life, the song brought in to the FBI radio studio and out of the box by Ron McCallum, the former dean of Sydney Law School, uh, is also blind. And that has informed a lot of his experiences. Uh, Ron, is, is law particularly attractive to blind people in some way? We people with disabilities are attracted to law because it's only in the head, right? It's in my head, or if you are in a wheelchair, or if you are deaf, or whatever, it's in your head. And it also is a way to um, protect your rights and protect your human rights and gives you knowledge of the world. And so it attracted me, and then I got attracted by labour relations law. How did you study your texts before that? Well... There were no computers, and so the only way I could do it was by having them read to me, either directly, like you're sitting there, you could be reading to me, or someone could read into a tape recorder, and I could get the tape and read it back later, which meant I had to rely on a lot of memory. Now, I could get students who would read uh, racy stuff in criminal law or torts, which are civil wrongs and accidents, but very hard to get people to read property law and novel to season. How did you write, though? What about writing exams, for example? Would you sit in an exam hall? No, I'd sit separately because from the age of nine, I'd learned to type. In fact, the first typewriter, my hands were so small, I couldn't reach the keys. Now my hands are too big. So I would type out my exams in a separate room. What was it about labor law specifically that drew you in? I enjoyed our system of conciliation and arbitration where we sought by awards to have relatively even terms and conditions of employment throughout the nation. Um, and there, there wa- wa- wasn't in those days the, the differentiations in income as there are today. I mean, there were differentiations. But what the system tried to do was to, to democratise or bring benefits of the economy to most people. And it seems to me, you know, that apart from the law on special, our special intimate relationships, one of the most important areas of law is... is the law of work, because, you know, we spend most of our adult waking time at work, at least I do. And so the way we're able to be treated at work is a litmus test of the democratic nature of our nation. And I think uh, people now have lesser working conditions, and I think the nation, the nature of democracy is weaker, and in fact the nature of democracy is rather weak in our country at the moment. Do, do you think you had a, a special angle coming into that as someone with a disability? I'm not sure. I came from a fairly poor family. I don't want to overemphasize that. But I I was an idealist and I was interested in making our country more democratically strong and allowing working people to live with dignity and to share the benefits um, in the economy that workers were uh, bringing about. Your studies took you to Canada was that the first time you travelled on an aeroplane? Lord, yes. I'd never been on an aeroplane till I was 23. My children laughed because I think they went on when they were four months old or something. Sure. How did, how did you fare travelling overseas? Well, I was a bit frightened. And when, when I got on, on the plane in Sydney to go to Canada, um, I asked them, I'd seen World War II movies, and I asked them where the parachute was. And they explained to me, if it goes down, it goes down. And in those days, this is 40-something years ago, 48 years ago or something. We had to stop at Fiji and then Hawaii and then Vancouver and Toronto. And there was no in-flight entertainment for me. 
there were no Walkman in those days, so I just had to sit and contemplate. So I just sat there. That's a lot, a lot of time in your own thoughts, and I, I suppose that's something that you would have generally had to had to deal with, or maybe be gifted by. It. I think, I'm not sure. I think I've lived too much in my head in my younger days, because of that contemplation and because of the lack of technology. And I'm not sure that that was the healthiest way to live. Uh, right. It's what a, a twenty-hour flight of, yeah. of of thinking. Yeah. Did you notice anything different in Canada in the way that they responded to to you? Yes, I'd come out of Australia at the end of of twenty three years of conservative government, um, and what I found in Canada under Pierre Trudeau um, was that people with disabilities were recognised more, women were recognised more, minorities were recognised more. The French language, um, you know, in Australia. I think up until 1966, if you got married and you're a member of the public service as a woman, you had to resign. I mean, there are all these sorts of things that weren't women had. So I, it opened my metaphoric eyes to a broader and more tolerant society. I'd been an, a demonstrator against the Vietnam War. And I went to Canada, which has a border with the United States that refused to get involved in that heinous war. Mm. How did it play out for you personally, the, the sort of pro- more progressive approach to, say, people living with a disability, for example? Well, it, it gave me more of an insight into the benefits of tolerance, the benefits of openness, and the benefits of protecting human rights. You spent some time with prisoners, or at least yeah. perhaps prisoners spent some time with you one way or another. Uh, what, what was that situation? I used to go to the Collins Bay Jail, Kingston, where I was at Queen's University, surrounded by prisons. And I went to have coffee every Tuesday with the 10 plus club. These are guys who are in for 10 years or more. And they wanted what all of us wanted. They wanted someone to treat them with dignity and to listen to them. And I learned a lot about deep listening, which helped me later on when I was dean and helped me in the United Nations. Listen to someone very carefully. What are they trying to say? And they wanted to help me. And so I gave them a tape recorder and they read labor law material during the week for me. As one of them said, you know, we ain't going anywhere. And I thought this was fantastic. Um, They were helping me, who was going to lead, uh, I think, in many ways, a better life or had better life chances than they had. And what it shows me is that it's human to give. I'm moving my arms here. We all want to give, and it's important that we learn to graciously receive. I learned a great deal in that jail. I think there are far too many people in jail and I think the only way to stop it is to just pull down a number of the jails. Don't build new ones because the old ones never close. No, I mean, I think prison numbers in this country have skyrocketed and and half the people have mental illness and they shouldn't be there. Many Indigenous people shouldn't be there. I mean, I think it's a blot on our society. Were there any relationships in that Canadian prison that were particularly pertinent or memorable? Yes. Tell me. No one's asked me that before. Um... Earl, I won't use last name, Earl was a sex offender who had taken a child and then had been caught up by the police before anything had happened. And I'm not saying belittled it because the child was obviously terrified. And he used to talk to me and he'd say, how do I become human again? You know, he recognised that, that he was messed up. How do I become human again? And I'd say, well, we all take one step at a time and you become human again. 
by understanding what you've done wrong, by remorse, by leading a better life. Um, and for a 23-year-old like me to be confronted by a sex offender when, you know, I'd had domestic violence in my youth was a really testing time and I had to learn to breathe and think. And, yeah, don't know what ever happened to Earl. Mm. What, what did you think uh, being confronted with a situation like that? Well, obviously it was, I thought it was terrible that he'd done this. Um, he was also, it seemed to me, I think quite mentally disturbed. Um, he was a person that obviously had a very poor family life. I'm not saying that, that we shouldn't blame people for doing what, you know, all of us know instinctively, you don't grab a child. Um, but I, my job was to be there and to befriend as much as I could and to um, be human. No one's asked me about this before. I have, you know, it's interesting, but yeah, it brings back a lot of memories. I think that prisons are generally full of stories. And yeah, yeah, yeah. When you're spending time there, particularly with a unique perspective, there often are. Yeah. Maybe we'll go to some more music um, now, if that's all right, Ron. Um, your, your next uh, song is, uh, Ca- is Carol King, oh, so so far away. I used to play um, it. It's almost in the title, this one, I yeah, guess. If, if only Carol King had met me um, <laughs> in 1970. You know the, the album Tapestry that has her on the cover with the cat? Uh-huh, uh-huh. I'm thinking now of record covers, which I guess are out. And so far away. And I'm sitting there in my room in the graduate residence and telephone calls were expensive and there was no email so I had to use air letters which meant I had to get a friend to read me the letters. I couldn't read them myself from family and so I'd hear this plaintive tune of, oh, I'm going to cry Carol King and it, it really stands in my memory. So far away Doesn't anybody stay in one place Travelling round, so gets me 
so far away Doesn't anybody stay in one place anymore It would be so fine to see your face at my door And it doesn't help to know you're so far away Yeah Carol King there from one of the most famous albums of the 70s, Tapestry, the song So Far Away, uh, from a time when my guest on Out of the Box, Ron McCallum, was uh, so far away. He uh, was the dean of Sydney Law School, amongst other things. Um, he's recently written his, uh, mem- his uh, memoirs, Born at the Right Time. You can cop that at your local peddler of literature if you uh, so desire he is uh, blind and he has been his whole life and that's informing a lot of the stories that we're sharing today uh ron your your young adult life was spent uh a lot of it was spent living alone did, did you enjoy living alone well there was no real alternative um so i made the best of it i worked very hard i I don't think I really enjoyed it, but it wasn't unhappy. A lot of friends were very good and used to take, I used to go out to dinners and, and movies and things. Well, what would happen if, if problems arose? You talk in the book about it being the small things about, about being blind that cause you frustration rather than the larger things yeah. that started that to Well, if I lost something, if I dropped something and I couldn't be able to find it, I'd have to wait until um, my... My surrogate mum Lois came, or a friend came, or my mum came. Um, if I got a letter in the post, I couldn't read it till someone came. Um, so all those little things were frustrating. I had to be very careful. I, I, I put pins in the back of my collars of my um, dark shirts, and the collars of my ordinary shirts, white, were were free, so I could make sure I was colour coded. I would pin my socks together in the washing machine and hang them out and then I, I knew that when I picked them in and they were dry I could put them together what do they say sorting out your sock drawer <laughs> um, and so I used a lot of little techniques like that so sorry how did that work you were able to sort them out by feel well well no I would I would pin when I took off a pair of socks before I put it in the, the laundry hamper I would pin them together so when I hang them out, they were pinned together. And so when they were all dry, I had them pinned together and I just undid the pin and put them together in, you know, as you unfold socks as I'm moving my hands, yeah. Were you lonely? Yes, I think so. Perhaps that's a good moment to ask you, how did you meet Mary Croc? Um, I met her at a sort of a drinking dinner party of lawyers in Melbourne and I was next to this guy from... Oxford, who was pretty boring, and by about midnight, I wandered round the table. I heard this voice, and I said, "Hello, I'm Mary. I'm Ron McCallum," and she said, "You are a retrolental fibroplasia child," and I said, "Smarty pants, how on earth would you know that?" And she said, "My dad's the first professor of ophthalmology in Australia." Wow! So she knew about blind people, and I found her manner very, very easy. How so? What does it mean to have an easy manner in that well, sense? Well, uh, she, she wasn't 
afraid of my disability or me being blind and she said come and sit here and moved a chair and, and I could tell that she wasn't put off or worried or she knew disturbed. how to be around blind yeah, people at not all. only blind people I think all sorts of disabled people and minority groups she's a refugee law professor now so yeah she understands that the first time you cooked her dinner how did it go well um she arrived and I bought some sherry because I thought ladies like sherry. And I tasted sound. It was just terrible. And she, I don't know about my facial expression. She said, darling, if you want to pour yourself a scotch, do so. So I'd cooked roast and potato and vegetables. And I put candles on the table. I went to light the candles and lit the placemat, which she put out. Oh, um, no. So we, we, had, we had dinner and about midnight she went home. And we kissed deeply and all of that sort of thing. Um, and I fell in love with her, yeah. And we were engaged six weeks later. Well, what, did, what did you love, at her, love, love about her? I wonder if um, falling in love might be different without the sense of sight. Well, I think sight attracts, but there are all sorts of things that are to her words, her voice. Um, smell is very important, right? In fact, um, it's the first thing that babies, I think, smell and then that it's the last thing before we move off the perch um and we've always used perfumes as allures right smell touch um voice mannerisms yeah i i was just blown away I, in fact i was teaching administrative law and and i decided that we'd read love po- poems to begin classes <laughs> when, when our engagement was announced in the paper, the students applauded and said, we now know what was wrong with you. That's, that's, that's a class that I want to be in. <laughs> that's right. Uh, oh, I love reading poetry to class. How did you have to adjust to living with a sighted person? Well, it was, was quite complicated. Um, after the oh, about three days, Mary said, can I say something personal to you? And I'm thinking, this could be the end of it. I said, yes. She said, um, who cuts your nails? I said, I do. And she said, do you mind if I take that over? Because she said, you're touching my face. And they're sort of uneven. um, Accidentally scratching. (laughs) And then, um, I don't know, uh, one day she came out of my apartment, which became hers, and we were going out and she said, I can't find a mirror. And I said, there's not a mirror in the house. And (laughs) so for the wedding, I I bought her a big full-length mirror, which sits in our... um, bedroom and then one night she'd gone and I went in to clean my teeth and I'm probably not very male so I just grabbed the toothpaste tube and I went squeezed into my mouth it was Mary's hand cream I thought I was going to die (laughs) I I went and had a small scotch just to get the taste down also Mary's a portrait painter and I had to learn that she's very visual and I'm very oral so sometimes she would switch off and I think we both we both had to learn um, you know, what did Mary say recently to a, a friend? Look, if you're going to marry a disabled person, don't buy cheap, chi- don't buy expensive china. <laughs> so, <yeah. laughs> did, did being in, in a couple change the way other people saw you? I wonder. Very much. Um, How so? People debate this with me, but I think um, I was seen as as single, nice guy, teaching. But I wasn't seen as, as competitive or within the same swim. Suddenly when I was, was in a couple and then a dad, um, people saw me the same. And I think society still belongs to couples, whether they're heterosexual or same-sexual couples, yeah. Look, people looked at me as more adult, I think. 
Tell me about the day you you saw, I put in inverted commas, her bridal dress. Yeah. Well, again, we had to think about our lives. Um, it's normally the case that the, the groom doesn't see the dress until the day of the wedding when, you know, uh, walks down the aisle. That wasn't going to be much good to me. I wasn't going to stop the wedding ceremony while I felt the dress. So two weeks earlier, Mary did um, a showing in her parents' living room where she put the dress on and came in and I was able to feel all over it, the billows and flounces, so that when she was coming down the aisle and she was also wearing a hundred-year-old veil, I'm getting quite tearful. But I'm imagining this in my mind because I know what the dress feels like and how it goes out at the bottom and tucks in at the waist, etc. Yeah. Oh, The, ne- the next song is, uh, is uh, Sweet Caroline, uh, Neil Diamond. Where does this one take you? Well, it's another 1966 one or 67 one, and I remember hearing it at the time, and he's written a lot about children. Sweet Caroline's about his daughter, and he's also written things like Beautiful Tune, I think. Um, and I, I, it, while I remember it in 1966, it's when I first touched the hands of my children and the first hand of our son, Jared, who was our oldest, who's now very big at 32 and much bigger than me, um, and that, that, that phrase, warm touching, warm hand touching hand, reaching out to you, reaching out to me, it's that human connection with our child, whether we're mum or dad, and, and that, that song still brings goose flesh to me. I can't begin to knowing But then I know it's growing strong Wasn't the spring And spring became the summer Who'd have believed you'd come along Touching hands Reaching out Touching me Touching you
is, of course, Neil Diamond there, Sweet Caroline, the song in Today by Ron McCallum, former dean of Sydney Law School, uh, is also blind. His memoirs, which he's recently published, is called Born at the Right Time, and he's my guest on Out of the Box for a few moments longer. Ron, I've mentioned that you were Dean of Sydney Law School, which might have been your highest post locally, but the Australian government also nominated for you to serve on the, uh, on a, on the UN Committee for the Rights of Persons with a Disability. But first you had to go to New York to campaign. What did that mean? First of all, the mission wasn't that excited about me. That They were Australian mission. They were working on getting into the Security Council and doing all sorts of other things. So they said, look, have a cup of tea with the ambassador, Robert Hill, a former Liberal minister. And Robert said to me, why can't we win this one? I said, well, Robert, let's go for it. He was a great man. He said, can I put my team onto this? So we held cocktail parties. I would sit in what was called the Indonesian lounge. It was called that because Sukarno had donated the cane furniture. And in those days, everybody in the UN smoked. Even They said that they, they weren't under American law. And you'd have to meet the ambassadors or election officers of other countries. So, so, so how, how is it selected first? So, so this is the, the campaign you're going on is to, to get the Australian position to be chair of this. Particular... No, 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 I was nominated along with 23 other candidates from the countries that had ratified the Disability Convention. Right. And who gets to vote? Every country that's ratified. Okay. So there were, in those days there were 41 countries. There's now about 160. And so you go into the Indonesian lounge and you go for votes. And, of course, governments play swapsies. Like, um, if you vote for our candidate, Ron, in this election, we might think about voting for your candidate in such and such. And I would meet ambassadors, and you could tell whether they were interested. You'd give a spiel, and they'd be excited, or they'd say, I have to send a cable to Capital, um, and we'll see what we can do. They, even though they used emails, they'd say, send a cable. And if they said it like that, you knew they weren't interested in voting for you. And, and even if they said they were, they probably might not. So, <laughs> and I got elected, so I was very excited. It, it came off. Yeah. Is it an announcement? Are you all in a room? Oh, we're all in a room, and I'm sitting right behind Robert Hill, and I'm saying, Ambassador, do you know how to vote? And he looked at me laconically. Um, and then they count up the votes, and I came in at number eight of and I was elected. So I jumped up like this and said, yes. And Robert Hill said, Professor, would you sit down, please? I was so pleased to be elected as, as the inaugural committee. And then later on, for three years, I chaired that committee, which was an extraordinary honour. And then for one year, at the meetings of the 10 human rights committees, I chaired the 10 of these learned chairs as a person with disabilities from a small housing commission house where I was born. Wow. It was quite extraordinary. What were the other committee members like? Well, they're all friends. Um, Damjan Tadic has spinal problems um, since he was nine, spina bifida. What country uh, was... From, from Serbia. He has a doctorate in international law. Jia Zhang from China, who also had a degree from Harvard, um, was blind. Um, Mohammed Al-Tarana from Jordan had been in a car accident and was paraplegic. There were colleagues with psychosocial disabilities. There's deaf person on the committee now. The current person on the committee from Australia is Rosemary Chaos, a marvellous uh, ambassador for Australia, or marvellous ambassador on the committee, that is. Yeah. So I, I learned, I learned um, to, again, I used my prison deep listening as chair 
to listen to people, to let them have their say, and to try and, and get compromise, etc., and work out what we were doing. Well, what were the common issues that, that um, were universal to people with a disability? We've got Serbians, Chinese well, representatives. Yeah, 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 African. Uh, I think um, everywhere around the world, um, violence and sexual violence to women and girls with disabilities, and indeed in, for some men, mainly women and girls with disabilities, seems to be endemic, just as domestic violence seems to be endemic. Uh, issues of education, inclusive education around the world, can we include uh, persons with disabilities in our schools? Problems of employment in Australia, um, while the labour force participation rate for adults is about 83%, for we disabled people it's about 52%. Uh, we want to be employed, we want to work. Education, employment... The whole area of the criminal and law, law we are overrepresented, particularly those of my sisters and brothers with psychosocial and cognitive disabilities in prisons. My um, um, indigenous sisters and brothers are overrepresented in jails. These are occurring all around the world. And there was a commonality to these problems. What do you mean by a commonality? Well, a commonality in the sense that whether you were in in, in, in China or the United States or Australia or France or Africa, violence against women and girls with disabilities was, was happening. Um, lack of education was a problem. Lack of employment was a problem. And the whole problem of the criminal justice system in all these countries. Ron, you make a, a somewhat of an effort in the book to emphasise your feeling that you've had a very fortunate life its title is born at the right time which speaks a lot to that sentiment some listeners might find that confusing why why do you say that your life has been so fortunate well i'm not a pollyanna but um coming from a, a poor background not every person with disabilities has the opportunity to partner and to parent I've had those wonderful opportunities. Not everyone has an occupation they like, and I've been teaching now. This is my 48th year of teaching, I think. I've, I've travelled the world and worked at the United Nations. And also, I'm amongst the first blind people in the world that have ever had the information technology. You know, um, computers were a breakthrough for us all, but they weren't nearly the breakthrough they were for me. They were extraordinary. In the late 80s, we invented programs of synthetic speech which would speak out from the computer, what was on the computer screen. I have a program that allows me to scan a book and to have it read out in, in uh, you know, um, synthetic speech. Like, for example, Joey, I wouldn't ask you here to read me a sexually explicit book. Um, but, you know, I could put the book on the scanner and <laughs> put my earphones on. And all of it's now in the iPhone. There's also things in the Android, but I'm familiar with the iPhone. I have all sorts of apps on my iPhone um, that will uh, scan a page for me in a restaurant that will tell me where I am. I've got a, a, uh, a colour app which tells me whether something's light or dark and you might want to know why do I do that. Well, often I do the family washing and on occasion my wife has said, darling, that was a nice blouse. Right? So I, I now know if I'm in doubt I can use a, 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 an app. Yeah, all these things have come in the last, you know, 20 years. And, and, you know, I grew up knowing men who were blinded by gas in World War I and some in World War II who came back to nothing. 
I was young enough at 37 to be part of this computer revolution. I could not have been um, a husband, a dad, working in the United Nations, dean of a law school, um, advisor to governments on labour relations uh, without that technology. So, yeah, I think I'm born fortunate. Ron, what, what can we finish with? What can we uh, play to, to um, put out this episode of Out of the Box? Well, I'd like to play the Sydney Children's Choir because two of our children, um, Daniel and Kate, were involved in the Sydney Children's Choir and I used to sit out listening to them. And uh, Daniel was involved in the Sydney Children's Choir 20 years ago with the 2000 Olympics. And um, I really like um, the songs of Paul Jarman, um, Ancient City and Shackleton, but Ancient City just has that vibe. And I, when I hear the recording, I'm thinking to myself, my children were singing in that. And it's like something in time. Because it's like a photograph. They're no longer children. Um, they're adults. But it's like a photograph recaptures the child, in a sense, and, and the, the recording recaptures to me, that's, that's my child. Yeah. So, yeah, they mean a great deal to me. Well, with this week, as every week, an enormous thank you to my producers, uh, Bree Jones uh, and, of course, Rebecca Merrick, who did a whole lot of work on, on this particular episode. Ron McCallum, thank you very much for being my guest on Out of the Box this week. Thank you, Joey. It's been a pleasure.
This podcast is produced by FBI Radio in Sydney. Find more at fbiradio.com slash podcasts.